0: Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black.
1: Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I'm your hostess. Eunice Elliott, I am one of the most fortunate people in America because I get a chance not only to just host this podcast and bring uh, luminaries to you guys, but I also get a chance to learn so much from our guest. And today is no exception. So our guest today uh, is Joseph Haynes Davis. He's an attorney, but he's so many other things. So I was going through your bio and I didn't want to read five pages, but if you could just tell me if, you know, your elevator pitch of who you are, in addition to being an attorney, you're well versed. A lot of subjects, and, and we're going to have fun talking to you today. But just tell me a little bit about you and your background, and welcome to the show. Oh
0: well, thank you. Uh, well, um, I'm a graduate of Illinois State University School of Communication with my bachelor's, and I have a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in social work, criminal and juvenile justice, and social functioning research. And uh, then my law degrees from Rutgers, Camden, across the bridge from Philadelphia. Uh, and I was, well, you know how it is with broadcasting. It's almost like the mafia. Once you're in, you never get out. Uh, but uh, I began as a broadcaster with National Public Radio, broadcaster, journalist, producer, and so forth, uh, with uh, WGLT, which was a national public radio station in central Illinois. Bloom to normal in 1979, and I stayed in radio uh, actively, so to speak, uh, for quite some time. Uh, the Markets included uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, Franklin, New Hampshire, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, New London, Connecticut. Wow, New Orleans, Louisiana, Philadelphia, Atlanta. I signed on KRB in Dallas, Texas, in 1996, and it's still the number one adult urban radio station in the Metroplex uh, here in Orlando, Florida with Cox Radio WCFB. And in the words of Muhammad Ali, it isn't bragging if it's the truth, but. uh, uh,
1: (laughs) Right, right. right, You've been around. You've been around. Uh,
0: (laughs) Got the uh, billboard award in 2000, passed the bar in 2001, and uh, have been a value adjustment board attorney, special magistrate for about 21 counties here in the great state of Florida, been a two-time judicial candidate. Uh, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And, uh, and I uh, do uh, international broadcast analysis for Turkish public broadcasting. Uh, it's called TRT World News. Uh, and I've been uh, their uh, analyst uh, since uh, the George Floyd murder. And uh, so it's been uh, an exciting uh, life, an exciting professional career. I, I don't uh, like to be pigeonholed. And I even read your uh, profile as well, ma'am. And uh, you don't like to be pigeonholed either. I mean, it's Very great true. to be intellectually free. And uh, it's great to be a critical thinker and one who also exhibits commentary in different ways, yours is sometimes comedy, as I understand it, and uh, mine, I try, uh, much to the chagrin of some, uh, but uh, I try to be objective with uh, my presentation Mm -hmm. on uh, national and international matters.
1: So you are an extremely impressive professional, but you also have a unique backstory as far as your family, including your parents and your siblings. If you could just, before we delve into our actual conversation today, tell us a little bit about your family.
0: Well, I am the youngest son of the late Dr. Miles Dewey Davis and my mother, the late Josephine Haynes Davis at the time, Josephine Bernice Haynes. When she married Dr. Davis, she was his second wife. And my father was one of the first four black American dental surgeons in America, having uh, received his dental surgery degree from the prestigious Northwestern School of Dentistry in 1924. And my mother, well, my father went undergrad at uh, Arkansas Baptist College, got his degree in 1919. My mother got her bachelor's degree, uh, magna cum laude at the time. uh, In 1938, she was only the third magna cum laude graduate of Kentucky State University in Frankfurt. And uh, that was the 50 year celebration of the university when she graduated. And then she got her master's degree at uh, Columbia University, December 17th, 1941. That was 10 days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And she became the first black American and the first woman to become a high school principal In the Madison County, Illinois School District in 1953, a full year before Brown v. Board of Education. And then she and my father purchased a 160 acre farm in southern Illinois in a place called Millstot, Illinois. And that's where I was born in 1947. And uh, that history is chronicled in the November 22nd issue of Ebony Magazine of 1959, and on page 78, you can see me uh, as darn near a newborn. I I think I was probably about, uh, at that time of that picture, maybe three, four months old. And uh, I'm very proud of that. And of course, uh, I am the uh, half-brother to the late trumpeter Miles Davis and music world music
1: icon. And what's amazing about your family background uh, is that Miles Davis is the, the add-on <laughs> to the wonderful uh, stories of your parents. I did get a chance to read that Ebony article. And it's uh, that's what I said. You have so many different facets to you. But today, uh, and thank you for sharing that, uh, today we're going to talk about, you want to share what three landmark cases uh, did to change the world. You mentioned Brown v. Education, but when we're talking about what we're going through today as Black Americans. Uh, give me some of your perspective on those three landmark cases and how they help shape the world we do live in today and, and what could help shape the next 50 to 100 years.
0: And uh, thank you for the question. And I would like to say to your audience that this is a great program from the standpoint of, I'm just respectfully one Black American male uh, who has lived 62 years, who has tried to gain as much knowledge be the renaissance Black American man that was talked about in the 1980s uh, of what we needed in our community uh, by Dr. Malifio Sante and the Afrocentric folks from Temple University. I kind of connected with them when I was in graduate school. But with that being said, we talked about the Dred Scott, Dred Scott v. Sanford Supreme Court case, along with Plessy v. Ferguson, and then Brown v. Board of Education, as important cases as to the, I would call it, life matriculation of those who are descendants of those who were considered chattel here in America. It's called the chattel trade, the chattel slave trade, not just slavery. It was the chattel slave trade. Now, with that being said, in 1857, the Supreme Court case of Dred Scott v. Sanford, which originated in the state of Missouri, crossed the bridge from Illinois. And Dred Scott was a runaway slave. And uh, I'm not going to say normally when slaves reached freedom, they were free because there was nothing normal about the institution of slavery other than the fact that it happened. But with that right. being said, he escapes to Illinois. His master, his owner, basically made the argument, that he wanted his property returned. And so the Dred Scott v. Sanford case ruled against Mr. Scott uh, in that the United States Supreme Court with the opinion written by Justice Tawny, T-A-N-Y, but it was pronounced Tawny, whose statute is still standing up in Baltimore, Maryland, but that's another conversation. Uh, But at any rate, um, wrote the opinion and basically said that the United States Constitution was never intended for Black Americans, because Black Americans were human, they were chattel, legally, constitutionally. And when
1: you say chattel, you mean property.
0: That is correct. Things that can Mm -hmm. be bought and sold. Again, moving forward, 1861, the beginning of the Civil War, 1863, Emancipation Proclamation, 1865, the ending of the Civil War, and in November of 1865, the passage of the 13th Amendment. Now, Again, I'm not here to get in an argument about the meaning of Juneteenth and so forth, because I used to live in Dallas as a broadcaster, and so I was aware of Juneteenth. But the fact of the matter is, the death knell to the institution of slavery is the 13th Amendment, okay? And that was passed, I believe, November 6th of 1865. Then we had Reconstruction beginning in 1866. That was where the first uh, census was conducted. So now you had a new population. Moving forward, 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court case that basically said separate institutions and separate accommodations in the public for citizens still means equal if they are more likely than not. Equal, in other words, the accommodations are equal. They're just separate. And then, of course, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, which effectively ended Plessy v. Ferguson. What I have said uh, in public and about my parents, that my parents were able to do what they did during the environment of Plessy v. Ferguson. In other words, separate but equal was the law of the land. Yet, a black man from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, in 1919. When others are still getting off the boat at Ellis Island, Dr. Miles Dewey Davis, he wasn't a doctor then, but Miles Dewey Davis Jr., a true American and a true American hero, more American than some because of how he descended, got his bachelor's degree from Arkansas Baptist College in 1919. Five years later, he's a dental surgeon. Josephine Haynes Davis in Richmond, Kentucky in 1916, June 9th, 1916 goes to kentucky state college early my maternal grandfather wanted to take care of his daughters so he sent her older sister my aunt and her to kentucky state she graduates top honors then goes to columbia gets her masters at 25 and Plessy v ferguson is still the law of the land they buy they get married they buy a farm 160 acres the biggest farm in southern st Clair county in 1947, Plessy v. Ferguson is still the law of the land. However, when the bigots came to intimidate them, they didn't call the Millstock police. They didn't call the St. Clair County Sheriff, although he was friends with my father. They didn't call the Illinois State Police, but they did call two 12-gauge shotguns from Smith and Wesson. And then everybody hmm. became friends.
1: And that And It's funny how that works.
0: Funny how that works.
1: So let me ask you, though. Well, well, my first question is you have such a such a mastery of the history of your parents and your family. And I find that I I would not I know where my mom went to college, but I couldn't tell you when she graduated. I mean, have you always been um, obviously interested in history and historical relevance? But starting with your parents, have you always did you grow up knowing that what they were doing was extraordinary or was it just mom and dad?
0: Very good question. I'm Figuring out now that it was just mom and dad, I just thought that this is just the way it was. But I can also say at a young age, I knew it was something a little bit more, you know, but also at a young age, I knew that that was something I needed to be thinking about doing. Now, I didn't always think that way, but I was very young when I knew that I was going to go to college. I didn't know what I was going to be, but I knew I was going to go to college, and then as I got older, I wanted to, you know, uh, be a be in broadcasting because again, television did not come into the homes of Americans until 1955. I was born in 1959. It was introduced as a medium in 1953. Okay, so by the time I, w- I mean, by the time I was, let's just say, 10, I had seen through broadcasting through television. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, I saw in real time the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby. I saw that happen in real time. I saw the reporting of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., which happened on my ninth birthday. Subsequent to that, Robert F. Kennedy, every day I saw in the media uh, the Vietnam War. That was the first war Brought to you every day with highlights. And then I saw a man walk on the moon and so forth. I saw Woodstock for portrayed on TV and so forth. So, uh, oh, and Walter Cronkite was uh, everything to me, not only as a child, but as a professional. And respectfully, although, you know, I don't know if you noticed or not, but. You know, I have the Walter Cronkite-like glasses and the Walter Cronkite-like button-down blue shirt.
1: You know what? I, uh, if I thought I was looking at Walter Cronkite when I first started looking at you. I didn't want to say anything, but since you mentioned it. <laughs>
0: but uh, that some folks may not know that it was the internet before the internet. It was called the World Book Encyclopedia Collection.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
0: I just ate that up. You know, it's your imagination. Right, right. You know, and well, let me,
1: me ask you this: You know, because you did have a unique upbringing, a, a, a blessed upbringing, that you have a greater perspective for in hindsight, for sure. What what would you say uh, when you talk about those three landmark cases, and then all of the things that you were able to witness growing up and as a child, as you mentioned, um, the assassinations, uh, the wars, and you know, um, what do you feel when you are now looking at the news and what's being portrayed, or what 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 is the landmark situations of our times? Obviously, George Floyd was. a a shift in a lot of people's consciousness, I subscribe to the theory that that was because we couldn't do anything else. We couldn't look away for that eight minutes, 46 seconds um, because we were in shutdown, we were in quarantine. Um, But what do you feel is the shift when you think about your perspective of the history you've already lived through versus the history that we're living through now?
0: You know, the only thing constant is change. Let me first say that there is still, for some reason. And I have, like, multiple theories and that would be too many to even get into here. But I would like to see that Black America embrace fundamental academia and academics again, and education. Embrace it. Right now, and it's not right now, it's been this way for a while. I mean, even when I played hip-hop records, uh, I can tell you that one of the most inspiring things as a person who introduced hip-hop to the pop world was dealing with my... Friend, I haven't spoken to him in years, not since I ran for office, but uh, Chuck D, because he was to hear the excellence in intellect being propagated and enunciated through that medium to the public, through the hip hop genre was just, I was in heaven. And so, you know, knowledge is power, but some of this fundamental knowledge, we just cannot or should not. It's just my opinion. It's one guy's opinion. You can do what you want because clearly everybody's doing what they want. But um, right. you, you, you can't blow that off. And I think that, uh, to in particular, when it comes down to the Constitution, it's just like anything else. If you read it and read about it enough, it is not complex anymore. That's important because that controls everything in this society, even what we're doing right now what is it? This is the First Amendment issue. But it's also, you know, uh, maybe even a Ninth Amendment issue, you know, and, it, you know, that, that encompasses privacy. Uh, you know, it's obviously a 13th Amendment issue because we, at the very least, look to be descendants of those who were once considered chattel in this nation. Although, on another note, everybody who is Black American who has been here may not have been descendants of chattel from the standpoint Of you had freedmen in the New England area who were never considered slaves. And let me also add whether you like it or not, chances are everybody, you know, with skin color like mine and possibly yours are also going to be descendants of the Confederacy as well. Maybe not through marriage, but the fact of the matter is you're a descendant of the Confederacy as well. And that's why I've always articulated or argued that slavery and the whole history about it is a very complex. American, uniquely American issue. But with that being said, knowing our history, but knowing the Constitution, because I think that when you look in particular what was going on last summer with the issues of the demonstrations and, you know, black men uh, dying for whatever reason, you know, you've got the Fourth Amendment, you know, you've got uh, Ninth Amendment issues, 13th Amendment is always there. Then with voting, You've got the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protections Clause, 15th Amendment. Keep in mind that granted black men the right to vote subsequent to uh, the ending of the Civil War and the beginning of uh, Reconstruction. And then the 19th Amendment uh, allowed for all women to vote. So I believe it's in our best interest to uh, know and understand the Constitution more than anything. And, and last but not least, and this is a controversial statement, and that's OK, too, I guess we should never give up the Second Amendment because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I am one black American male who will never live in this society ever and be unarmed ever. I mean, if they're. If violent white supremacy exists in the embodiment of violent white bigotry with high capacity rapid fire semi-automatic weapons if they got one I want five if they have one bullet I want five thousand right because that's just the way it is for me mm-hmm. it's not for everybody
1: well well I, I I'm gonna be wherever you are with your uh, arsenal. <laughs> So I feel like uh, I want to wrap up this episode. There's so many things I would love to have you back to talk about some of the the other things you kind of touched on. There's no way for us to really delve into it and dive into it to really take advantage of your point of reference and knowledge with most of these things. But um, when we're talking about what can we do, I feel like one of the action items you've already mentioned is familiarize ourselves with the history, with the constitution, with these landmark cases. But um, can you suggest to our listeners um, what it is that we can do when we get done listening to this episode But what can we do to be more part of the solution, more part of a help to our community? All of us are not going to be uh, have as great a memory as you (laughs) or be as great of students as you. But what can we do right now to help move the needle forward from whence we came?
0: I think, again, it's going to fall back to the whole issue of education. I can also say the book is called The Words We Live By. It's an annotated guide to the Constitution. It's very, very easy to read. And I would urge anyone who's listening to this, it is worth the buy. I would also encourage intellectual curiosity. It seems like there's an element that is afraid to be curious intellectually about these things. You you have to read. You have to study. You have to read. You can't beat that. You know, people just learning about the Tulsa 1921 massacre. I knew about that for years. But what you don't know is about the East St. Louis race riot massacres from 1917, that Josephine Baker, she talked about it in her book. She's from East St. Louis. Things like that. You can find it out if your curiosity is powerful enough to continue to ask the questions why. So th- I think that's the best answer.
1: I think that's the wonderful answer. And it's the the linchpin of our entire uh, podcast is to get people to be curious. Obviously, we can only cover so much each episode, but we try to have people that will spark, you know, I call it the rabbit hole that when we hear one of our guests say one thing, it causes us to look more into that and and get to the next thing and get to the next thing, all to educate ourselves. We're able to pass it along. I really appreciate your time today. You know, I'm not even going to say critical race theory at the end of this episode, so we'll just uh, invite you back. (laughs) We'll invite you back. We'll invite you back. Because I, I know that, that that'll probably be a two or three-parter uh, from your perspective. And I would really appreciate you uh, becoming a friend of the podcast. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your time, Joseph Haynes Davis. You are based out of Florida uh, and you are an attorney there, but you also have some um, projects coming up.
0: Yeah. And thank you again for that. Um, well, I'm trying to uh, put the narrative and the book together about the story of uh, my mother and father, have all, I believe I have an appropriate title, which would be titled A Great American Love Story. Because I think it is an outstanding view of black life during that time and how they excel. That's a subjective opinion. But uh, I also tell people, again, facts don't lie. Only people do. And it ain't bragging if it's the truth. So that's my immediate thing, if you will, that I'm trying to get
1: together. Well, we'll be waiting for it. We'll have you back to talk about that as well. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time and for enlightening us and, and hopefully, you know, lighting that spark for several of us to, to educate ourselves, as you mentioned, uh, on on not just those landmark cases, but just the Constitution in general and, and how we came to be here and how rights came to be so-called granted through different amendments. And we also know that you are protecting your Second Amendment rights, your right to wear arms, and, and I'll be right there with you. So thank you so much uh, for listening to this episode of the history of being black stay safe and until next time take care
0: the history of being black podcast is hosted and produced by unicelli edited by ken johnson executive producers ken johnson find the history of being black podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast the history of being black podcast is a mean old lion production